Paul opposes Peter. It's Galatians 2, 11 to 21. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we are ourselves our sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Hallelujah. Amen. I love the fact that Dan gave me this passage because it practically writes itself, the sermon. And you could just read the passage over and over a couple of times and that would pretty much do it. That would achieve it. Um, nonetheless, here we go. So the book of Galatians is quite clearly about uh, challenging these ideas that somehow we still have to follow some of the old law whilst also being alive and resurrected and saved through the works of Christ. This is a theme that keeps coming up. And we have here possibly one of the most tense or contentious moments in early Christian history. We have two absolute titans of the faith. We have got Paul, previously Saul, the persecutor of Christians, a murderer, of Christians and others. Converted by an experience where he meets with Christ in a powerful way and goes on to become one of the biggest and most influential leaders of the early Christian church. 
a lot of our New Testament is written by, or at least has been dictated by Paul. A lot of it, well over a quarter, if not more. On the other side of this, we have Cephas, or Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. One of those lucky individuals that got to spend so much time in person listening to Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, the Messiah, and has then had a revelation from the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus was and who Jesus is, and goes on to convert or see converted thousands within one sermon. Oh, how I hope, how I could hope to see that happen. Thousands of people in a day, in a few hours, <coughs> titan of the faith. Some commentators will actually say that when it comes to the book of Acts, which a lot of these letters from Paul actually are kind of written during and around that time, the first half of Acts, around up to chapter 15 or so, is basically about Peter and the stuff that Peter saw happen. And the second half of Acts is about Paul and the work that we see Paul doing, roughly speaking. Two titans of the faith. And one of them has to challenge the other one in public. On a matter which seems important, but on the surface, is it, is it something we need to have a head-to-head -head clash over in public, in front of other believers probably? Maybe, maybe not. But here we have Paul writing about it in Galatians. Um, this probably happened around the time of Acts chapter 15, which is where uh, Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem to have a council on the issue that they discuss. Should Gentile believers in Christ have to follow the practices of the law and Judaism? Should they do that? They had a, a whole council to discuss this. And it seems to me that if Paul didn't do what he did, we could be experiencing Christianity in a very different way, potentially. If Paul didn't take a stand when he did, we could be experiencing our faith in a completely different way. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What was the crime? What was the issue? Well, we'll come back to that. Anyone here know the significance of the year 1517? Very significant year. There are a few knowing nods already. Dan? Martin Luther, Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, yeah. So, for those of you that don't know, uh, in 1517, Martin Luther purportedly, nailed his 95 theses, these 95 ideas about how the church should be reformed. Or rather, not how the church should be reformed, but rather how Christians should be approaching Christianity, full stop. Whether he actually nailed it to the door or not is another question, but it's quite a nice bit of drama uh, for him to do so. And what he was doing was he was challenging the church at the time. You see, the church at the time had a number of practices that had started to creep in where there was actually nothing biblical about them. Nothing biblical about them. No scripture, no verse, nothing that could be pointed to to say, yeah, this, this practice is, this is where we get it from. Probably one of the 
most infamous ones being um, the selling of indulgences. Uh, and these were uh, things that you could buy with real money that basically would speed up your time in purgatory. So the church believed in purgatory, this kind of waiting period where once you died, your spirit would go to a place of waiting before being judged, and then the decision about whether you went to heaven or hell, essentially. And if you bought indulgences, you could speed up the amount of time that you were in purgatory for. This was all approved by, at the time, the priests, the Pope, people like that. Martin Luther didn't like this. And Martin Luther, by the way, not a perfect character, but Martin Luther didn't like this, and so he came up with these 95 theses, which basically are summarized as, the Bible is the absolute word of God and source of our faith in terms of instruction, and we are only justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works. And this was, um, in a way, this was revolutionary because it completely changed the way that the church thought about how we approach these issues. Actually, the idea had been around since the fourth century where Augustine, another founding father, if you like, of the church, uh, had actually put forward the same idea, but it hadn't really taken hold. Martin Luther felt something had to change. Something wasn't right. In his study, of the Bible, he could not find things to back up the current practices of the church, and so, in a somewhat dramatic way, began a debate that ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation. In the UK, very broadly speaking, we have two types of church, Catholicism and uh, Protestanti Protestantism, if that's a word. Um, very broadly speaking, and we would consider ourselves to be Protestant, more or less. And our beliefs, our idea that the Bible is king in terms of Christian uh, study and um, word and doctrine, our belief in that and that we are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ and not by our works and the practical things we do stemmed from that reformation. So in the first part of the passage, Paul's doing something very similar here. Paul is seeing an issue. He's having a look at something that's going on, and whether by some kind of divine inspiration or just because he's quite a clever man, he begins to see a problem emerging. The problem is this. We've got people standing up saying that now we are not saved by the law, we're saved by Jesus and what Jesus has done. There is room in God's kingdom for more than just Jewish people. Now everybody is welcome in. Everybody. But then these same people, when they're coming and having meals, are separating themselves entirely from the Gentile, the non-Jewish believers. They are completely separating themselves, not going near them possibly so far as to say they're almost unclean, they're, they're a problem, we don't go near them. But that's not what Peter was preaching. His practice became very different to his preaching. Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision where God essentially says, eat whatever you like, 
Don't worry about these laws around what you can and can't eat, about what animals are clean and unclean. Don't worry anymore. He has a stark vision, and he has it three times, two times, three times, from God to say, this is okay. And he preaches this. He goes and he eats with Gentiles. He preaches the gospel in the homes of non-Jewish people to see them come to faith. He does this. It's written in Acts. But then something changes or something happens and he starts to withdraw from those people, only hanging out with the Jewish believers or the, uh, the, the, the Gentile believers that had essentially done what they needed to do to follow Judaism and all the practices that were involved with that. Some versions of the Bible um, translate Paul's accusation as hypocrisy. He says to Cephas, you're a hypocrite because you preach one thing, but then you're practicing something completely different. An accusation that probably stung, I would imagine, considering Jesus's continuous challenge of hypocrisy, the parables that he told, the fights he had with the Pharisees. Chances are this Jewish set of believers that came down to Antioch to spend time with Paul and Peter and the believers there, they were probably ex-Pharisees, probably, we don't know for certain, but probably ex-Pharisees based on the things that they were saying and the way that they were approaching um, these topics. When they come down, Peter is, some versions will say, afraid of them, scared of them, scared maybe of their opinion of him. Maybe Peter wanted to bridge the gap. Maybe Peter chose to sit with them as a bridging point, as a way of saying, look, I'll, I'll go and sit with, I'll have a chat with them and I'll be, the, I'll be the bridge between the two. But it seems to happen repeatedly and there doesn't seem to be much in the way of change. And it's this that seems to then prompt this big council in Acts chapter 15 where an argument goes back and forth about what is actually the correct answer. Paul has to challenge a critical idea. Jewish converts should not be seen with Gentile believers unless the Gentile believers follow Judaistic law. This is a problem. And Paul goes on to explain why, which is fantastic, because it makes exposition of this Bible verse really, really simple and easy. Paul says, if we are bound by the law, which, by the way, Paul does call holy in Romans, so Paul is not anti-law. Paul calls, in Romans 7.12, he calls the law holy. So Paul's not anti-law. But what he's saying is, if we are bound by this law, if we still have to follow this stringent and strict series of rules, then everything Jesus did is pointless. What does it achieve? Why did Jesus die if we then still have to follow this law over here? This law was given by God so that people could be sanctified before him and approach him. This law here, if that is fully sufficient, why did Jesus need to die? What benefit does it provide? What does it achieve? It waters down. This belief that we have to follow this here strictly waters down the amazing work that Jesus did on the cross. Personally, I've got to say I'm quite glad that Paul made that argument. 
You see, the law was quite a difficult thing to follow. There was a lot of it. There is a reason that in Jewish tradition, which carries through today, people are expected to have at least read out loud the Torah, which are essentially the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. They are expected to have read it out loud. They're also expected in a lot of circumstances to show that they can read out loud the Psalms and read out loud Proverbs as well in a lot of cases. Wisdom books, they're sometimes called. Why? Because these summarize the law. These summarize the rules that God gave to say, if you want to remain sanctified and holy, the only way you're going to do that is by following this. And some of the rules are beyond complicated. Anyone here wearing nylon today? A few nods. I wonder what our masks are made of. I'm sure there's some mixed stuff in there. You see, in one of the Levitical laws, there is a rule that says don't wear something like mixed textiles or something like that. It's either pure, pure wool or pure cotton or whatever, yet we wear nylon. There are other laws that, say, uh, that talk about farming. And when you farm, you have to do certain things in your farming. For example, six years you farm your land, the seventh you leave it bare. Laws about that. Laws about what you have to pay your neighbour if you stole their donkey. Or if you accidentally stole their donkey. Or if your donkey went into their land and knocked over their fence. And whether you did it on purpose or not. Laws like that and how to actually reconcile these problems. All described in the Levitical law which is repeated in Deuteronomy. God gives it a second time. Really, really complicated. And so God in his awesome, caring majesty in something that at first looks a bit weird but when you think about it when you think about how difficult it is to follow the law institutes one other thing he says once a year one of your high priests the highest people in the order of worship here, one of these high priests has to get dressed up in a very heavy complicated costume, they have to cover their eyes and they have to enter this place where I reside, the most holy of holies, they must bring with them the blood of a sacrifice which will be offered to me. And this is a catch-all. This is a sign that I have accepted your sacrifices. A catch-all. Because it was just impossible to follow this law. Not in, a, not in a negative way. God wasn't setting people up to fail. But it's just from a human perspective so difficult to follow that law perfectly. So God goes, okay, I'm going to give you a catch-all. Once a year, big sacrifice. If I accept it, you continue to be my people. If I don't, I have left you. And as far as we are aware, every year this happened, God accepted the sacrifice. But he had to make a catch-all. He had to put something in there that was there to cover anything that might not have been achieved. Some people will refer to that stuff as ceremonial law. A kind of a, a section of law literally about how we, how we fit in with God, how we, how, we, how we get that forgiveness, how we get that holiness. There are other distinct parts of the law. Some people will say there's parts called absolute law. These are things like the Ten Commandments. These are things God intended to be throughout history. And if you take a look at the Ten Commandments, they're very easily summarized 
by the words of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. You can break down the Ten Commandments into those two instructions. And then we have these other bits of law. Not ceremonial, they're not talking about how we reconcile ourselves with God. They're instructions for daily living. And some of those obviously are a little bit more contentious. Don't eat shellfish would be one of them. Don't eat pork. Anybody got pork for roast today? Anyone? It's fine. It's not a name and shame. Um, Don't eat pork. Things like that. And a lot of commentators tend to view these as more practical tips. God is saying don't eat shellfish, don't eat pork, because there's no way with your current level of technology you can make those healthy. If you eat shellfish, you will probably get very sick and die. Kind of the argument going on here. Um, Another contentious one, um, a lot of people will say don't get tattoos, it's in in Leviticus, don't get a tattoo. I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, that's not what it says. What it says is, do not mark yourself the way that those around you are marking yourselves. That's actually referring to the Amalekites who would cut themselves in a way that drew a shape of their God or a symbol of their God upon their body, thereby marking themselves permanently with their God, a God who is not Yahweh, Jehovah, our God. By today's standards, that's not a practice, certainly not commonly done in the West. I would suggest that perhaps our way of applying this is to say, don't get tattoos that worship someone else or another God. Don't mark yourself in a way that worships something or someone else. God is your only God, for example. And Paul is not saying that the law is therefore useless. Paul is not saying that. As I said, he considers it holy, even as a converted Christian. What Paul is saying is that if we're tied down by ceremonial law, Jesus' sacrifice means nothing. Nothing at all. In my preparation... I turn to, I always turn to at least one biblical commentary. Um, Again, if you're not aware, biblical commentaries, lots of writers like to take books of, usually books of the Bible, and really unpack the meaning behind them. So the book of Galatians, which is only a few chapters long, I've got a single book here written by John Stott that's that thick. And it's just John Stott, he takes a look at the verses, talks about the original meaning of the verses, the history behind them, and then goes on to unpack what this actually means for us as believers today. There are lots of biblical commentaries out there. Some of them are really, really accessible. Others are a nightmare uh, to access. And when I turned to my, uh, my, my commentary on Galatians, I found it highlighted and written in, but not by myself, because I inherited this copy of uh, this book And I inherited from our much-loved departed member, Brian. Grandad, as I would call him. And Brian highlighted something that I went, wow. That's the one. The participants of this are also different. They're not first-century apostles, but 20th-century churchmen. The battleground is different, too. It's not a question of mosaic circumcision, which was the primary argument. Now it's secondary matters, such as confirmation, mode of baptism, church's ministry. But the fundamental issue at stake is precisely the same 
namely on what grounds Christian believers may enjoy table fellowship with one another, on what grounds they should separate from one another and excommunicate one another. The answer to these questions is given by the gospel. The gospel is good news of the justification of sinful men by God's grace. It tells us that the sinner's acceptance with God is by faith only, altogether apart from works. This is the truth of the gospel. Once we've grasped it clearly, we're in a position to understand our twofold duty towards it. Our duty being to follow it, and our duty being to preach it. We're justified by our faith in Christ, and that is the important thing. We will disagree with other churches on their practices. I have been to four different types of church, and by being to, I don't mean visiting, I mean attending regularly. I've attended four different types of church, and I'll tell you this, every single one of them has at least one practice that I personally would disagree with. That is not a bad thing. Variety is good. For two years, I attended a Church of England church that preaches infant baptism and confirmation at the age of 14. Those are two practices that personally I don't agree with. Was that a problem? No. Because that church also preached Christ crucified, Christ raised, and justification by our faith in him and not by our works. It led to some great discussions, conversations. I learned a lot from going to a church that I wouldn't necessarily have thought about going to. I learned a lot about Christian practice and about the wonderful variety that we have. And I would go to meals with them. Because you know what? As much as that is a core piece of their belief and a core piece of mine, it doesn't matter compared to the justification that we have in Christ. And the justification bit pretty much writes itself. Martin Luther said, this is the truth of the gospel. It's also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and this is my favourite bit, and beat it into their heads continually. Martin Luther, 16th century. Uh, he also adds, if the ar article of justification is lost, then it is true of all Christian doctrine. So heavily did he and Paul and a lot of the early Christians believe in this. We're justified by our faith. I can't say that enough. We are justified by our faith. There are good practices for us to follow. There is a way of living that is given to us. We're given the fruit of the Spirit. We're encouraged to be loving people, not hateful, not angry, not spiteful. We are encouraged to live in a certain way, to not do certain things, to follow those Ten Commandments, if nothing else. There is an expectation on us. But just doing those things on their own is not enough to be justified. And that might seem a little bit unfair to some people. I've lived a perfectly good life, the illustration from Tracy and crew. I've lived a perfectly good life, but I'm not justified. But that person over there that hasn't is, 
How is that fair? And this is a question I've had from people discussing with them about faith. How is that fair? Well, let me introduce you to the curly-whirly gospel. I love the curly-whirly gospel. You can look it up. There is a video on it. It's fantastic. The real simple concept. Two people live identical lives. Everything about them is identical. Identical, uh, identical upbringing. Identical friends. Identical jobs. Identical family. Everything about them is identical. Everything they do. They're like parallels of each other. The good and the bad. The things they've done that are righteous. The things they've done that are unrighteous. All of that stuff identical with one small exception. Which is one of them stole a one-piece sweet from the Pick-A-Mix. And the other one stole a curly-whirly, worth, at the time, 10p. Not now. Far bigger crime now if you steal a curly-whirly based on the current rates. But 10p curly-whirly versus a one-piece suite. Those two people face judgment, and it turns out that when you weigh the good with the bad, the one that stole the one-piece suite was just good enough to get in. But the one that stole the curly-whirly, that tipped the balance just that little bit too much. And so because they stole nine pence more from a shop, they are condemned. They're not worthy. But this person is. Now, I then ask the question, does that seem fair? Or, it's a much more fair way to say it literally doesn't matter how much you've done, whether you stole a 10-piece suite or a 1-piece suite or a thousand pounds from a bank and nothing, it doesn't matter because everybody has a way to be justified that is accessible to literally every human being that has ever existed. All you've got to do is put your faith in Jesus. Accept that you need him. That's all you've got to do. That's the only criteria. And yeah, okay, murderers are going to go to heaven. Some really good people may not. That is contentious. But what a much more fair way of doing it. Everybody has access to a simple criteria that doesn't require wealth. It doesn't require health. It doesn't require skills. It doesn't even require knowledge. It requires one thing. Acceptance of Jesus. Someone once told me, again, in, in these conversations I end up having, this was when I was a teenager, someone once said, wow, you've got to follow Jesus to get into heaven. Cool. That's a bit of an exclusive club. I said, well, yeah, okay. It's exclusive. That's your requirement. But everybody can follow Jesus. So really, it's not that exclusive. It doesn't take much to get your name on the list, if you think about it. And that's true. How wonderful and fair is that? Jesus came so that we could be justified by his death and saved by his resurrection. That's it. That's the wonderful thing. It's not about our works. It's not about whether we were good enough or not good enough. It's not about whether we did the right sacrifice or the wrong sacrifice. It doesn't matter. We just have to believe and trust in him. So if you are feeling pressure today, I didn't do the right thing. Am I living the right life? 
These are, these are good questions to sometimes reflect and ask ourselves. But don't think that that, that question, don't feel that that pressure comes down to your salvation or how much Jesus loves you. And if anybody is listening to this today who hasn't yet come to that point of having faith in Jesus, let me tell you, all of those burdens, whether you're a good person or a bad person, Jesus accepts you. He wants you. He wants to come and wrap you in his arms. He wants to take that burden from you. If you think you're too bad to come to church, I say come join the party. Because everybody here has been a sinner, is a sinner, but we're justified by Christ. We're justified by our faith in him. Justified by faith alone. We have been crucified with Christ. The way that the Greek is written for this, it could just as easily be written, Christ was crucified with us. They are two completely identical things. I can't remember the technical term for it, but there's something you can do in Greek where you basically say, this means this, and you can swap them around and they mean exactly the same thing. This is one of those situations. We translate it as, uh, we were crucified with Christ. It could just as easily be written, Christ was crucified with us. That's how powerful that act was. All the sin, all the bad stuff, taken by Jesus, that moment that he went up on that cross, that moment that he died, it was gone. And you know what? If you were the only human being on the planet, if I were the only human being to have ever existed, he still would have done it. He still would have done it. But the amazing thing is he did it for everyone in all of history. Everyone who has ever existed, everyone who ever will exist, he did it for them. And if we want to experience that justification, we just have to go, yeah. Yeah, you did it. And I thank you. I'm justified by what you did. I can't do it on my own. I need you. And I'm sorry for the things that I did. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But I'm thankful that you did. Justified by faith alone. So as we've already said in the other two sermons, essentially, take the weight off. Take a load off. Don't stop trying, but take the weight off. Justified in him, by him, and by your belief in him. Invite the band to come back up as a, as a closing prayer, but I do just want to give an opportunity um, that if anyone here wants to reaffirm that faith, or if anyone listening or anyone here wants to take that step and say, yes, this is what I want and this is what I believe, I'm ready to do this, then while the band are playing, this is a good chance. Prayer team, could you just pop your hands up quickly? Identify someone in the prayer team, come grab them, say, I want to make this prayer. I want to reaffirm or I want to affirm. Great. Say it yourself, but this is a public thing as well. But let's, uh, let's pray together now as we close. Jesus, I thank you that we are sanctified and justified, made right, found innocent 
in you and by you, by believing in you and your works. It's all about you and what you've done, and it's not about us. And thank you for the freedom that that brings us. I pray that where we may disagree with other people, we handle it in an appropriate way, and that it doesn't stop us from ultimately bringing the good news that we preach and, and, and live. And I pray that anybody here who is feeling uh, a weight or a pressure by their past or by their burdens today, I pray that that would be taken away in the light of your goodness and in the knowledge of who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Jesus. May we continue to look to you, the author and perfecter.